Well, it's good to be with you this morning. My name is Grant Bird, and my family here as well. We're over from the Whitewater area. I'm sorry, Bruce. I thought, yeah, when I saw that you were planning to speak last week and weren't able to, I thought maybe I shouldn't come and just let you let you go. We could, uh, we could flip a quarter for them. Or I'll do the first hour, and Bruce can do the second. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's good to be with you. It's a great privilege to open God's Word. That is the power. That is the thing that awes me this morning as we turn in God's Word. I would invite you to Revelation chapter 5. With December and with the Advent season, again, we think of Christ come in humility and incarnation. But we also see throughout Scripture the incredible glory and power of this God who is Christ and who came in the flesh to us. Revelation chapter 5 certainly highlights Jesus exalted as lion and lamb. Let's read the first four verses of Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scrolls and to break the seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word this morning, I ask that you would, by the power of your spirit, open our hearts to receive, to receive grace and instruction to receive a vision of Christ that is truly awe-inspiring and worship-creating. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It has been said that a person can live 40 days without food, four days without water, four minutes without air, but only four seconds without hope. I don't know the clinical accuracy of that, but I do know we all need hope. We all have hopes that drive and motivate and inspire us. And we need hope because we all face seasons that are hard. We all face circumstances that are painful. And we ask this question in in one form or another, will it get any better? Will this turn in the right direction? direction? Is there good around the corner? In Revelation chapter 5, John looks around the corner, as it were. He sees from 40,000 feet or, or wherever heaven is, he looks and he sees God's plans unfolding and God's purposes at work. And what he sees and how he experienced this, as he writes it, gives us hope. Again, we we read a little bit of what he sees in the first four verses. 
And you know, in a few minutes, 30 minutes or so, we're going to stand up and we're going to walk out of here. And as you go, by God's grace, there are three things I want you to take with you. Three truths that orient us in this text. First, I want us to see together and to understand the problem that John grieves. Why is he weeping? Number two, I want us to see and understand the solution that God brings to him. Number three, I want us to feel the response it inspires. We've been singing this morning about worthy is the lamb. And we're going to see that fleshed out here in, in the angels and all creation singing glory. I want us to feel that through this, this movement of the text, how that can drive worship in our own hearts. So first, understand with me the problem John grieves. John is a sort of a basket case as this text opens. His, his eyes are red. His, the tears are on his cheeks. He confesses in verse 4 that he was weeping loudly. It's not just a little sniffling. This was an, an outpouring of, of grief. Frankly, it's, it's a little disturbing. And if you were to go somewhere this afternoon, um, or maybe Monday when you get to work, and, and the guy next to you is just bawling, you would be like, oh, What's going on here? This is this, should I say something? What, what can I do? Uh, what, what's, what's the problem? So we see John and we ask that question, what, what's going on? Why is he weeping? And John tells us, kind of the, the center of his grief is this scroll, this book. Some of your students, maybe you can appreciate this, this weeping, right? No, it wasn't that kind of grief over the books. But John is, is weeping, and, and this scroll, this written document, you think about prophetic images. This scroll shows up in, in Ezekiel. Um, in Ezekiel, um, he eats a scroll. In Daniel chapter 12, there's a, a scroll that is sealed. You know, so that this imagery of a book in prophetic literature portrays that God has a plan and a purpose, a, a future that he has laid out, he has recorded in these scrolls. That's the same is, is true here in Revelation 5. This scroll represents God's perfect, complete, final plan for history. In fact, as it becomes unsealed later on in the book, without giving a spoiler on that, you see history unfolding. And yet here is this scroll um, which we could call you know, the book of destiny. One author calls it the book of destiny of mankind and God's culmination of history. Another says this is the book containing God's plan of judgment and redemption. I think both of those uh, work together. So why is John weeping? If this is God's good and complete and perfect plan, and that idea of being written on front and back has the idea of it, it, it's exhaustive. It's, it's a perfect book. Why is John grieving? Because the scroll, it says, is sealed. You ever locked your uh, keys in the car? And you go back to the car and you realize, oh, they're in there. And so you look at windows and you maybe can even see them and you're like, 
They're so close and yet so far. And John sees the scroll. It's right there. It's God's perfect plan. It's the future of history. It's salvation and judgment for the universe, for the world. It's so close and yet so far because if that scroll remains sealed, all God's plan and all God's purpose for the salvation and the judgment of the world can't happen. It's on pause, as it were. And so John weeps. This call goes out in verse 2, and I saw a mighty angel with a loud voice. And the call goes out for someone who is worthy to open the scroll. He says, I saw a mighty angel with a loud voice proclaiming who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. Who has the power and the authority to make God's plan sing? Who has the power and the authority and the place to make God's perfect plan and purpose for humanity come to fulfillment? Who is worthy? This upcoming year, 2024, is an election year. You think of an election cycle as, as that comes near you. Know, this, this basic question is, in a way, who's worthy? Who's up for the challenge? Who's fit for the responsibility of government? Who, who can meet the challenges and accomplish the purposes that the voters, anyways, see as necessary and needed? Who is worthy? Sometimes even in a little thing like ruling a nation, we kind of despair. Who is worthy, right? Who, who can do this? Who's out there? How much more challenging to ask and answer the question, who is worthy to be in charge of activating God's plan for the entire universe? Who is worthy? So heaven and earth are scoured. Men and angels are measured. The depths of the sea are plumbed. Verse 3, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. God's purposes for history might be wonderful. They might be complete. But what does it matter if there is no one who can actually put those plans into reality? Personally, I think we encounter that same question in a smaller way in our own lives every day. And we know some of the promises of God. We know Romans 8, 28, don't we? For we know that all things work together for those who love God, excuse me, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And we know the promise, or maybe there are other promises we, we have in our mind, but then the question comes, so really, who can actually make that promise happen? Who can actually fulfill all of these good and amazing promises of God? Who is worthy to really stake our hopes on? 
And as John reflects on this and he sees this scroll with God's promises and he grieves the reality that in this moment at least, no one is found worthy. This is the problem John grieves. Is anyone up to the challenge of activating God's promise and purpose? This brings us to the second reality. That is the solution that God presents. Look down at verse 5 through 7. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. The elder comes to John in verse 7 and says, don't weep. Weep no more. Stop crying. Those are beautiful words. Powerful words. And totally empty words. Unless there is someone to back them up. Unless there is a reality bigger than the words themselves, right? If someone comes to you in grief and just says, don't, don't cry, don't cry. Sometimes we do that to our kids. We don't know what's going on, but we're just trying to calm down. But with the real challenges and tears we face in life, if someone doesn't have something beyond the words themselves, what does it matter? Well, the elder has something beyond the words themselves, and he tells John, don't weep. Look. Behold. Pay attention. So much of Christian hope is anchored in the, the reality of where we choose to place our eyes, where we choose to look and focus, focusing on the right data, paying daily attention to the right person, not being distracted by the waves at our feet, as it were. You know, sometimes the challenge with saying that is we come back and say, well, okay, is that just some kind of mind game? You know, look at this, don't look at that. Is that a, a mind game? Just tricking yourself into being positive. Is it a mind game to tell the, the batter at home plate, if you're coaching Little League or something like that, to tell the batter, keep your eyes on the ball. Focus on the ball. Is that a mind game? No. Because the point is to hit the ball. And if the point in our lives is to see and admire Jesus, then it is not a mind game to say, behold, look, pay attention. The elder says, behold, weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Has conquered. So look to Jesus, and as the elder directs John's attention to Jesus, he, he gives basically two sides, two aspects of who Jesus is. And the first is simply the lion. He is a lion, and frankly, a lion is a dangerous 
animal. If you were to summarize what a lion, a lion is a strong, dangerous animal. The boys are studying food chains in uh, science. And you have this, eats this, eats this, eats this. And at the top, well, the lion's kind of at the top. He eats everything below it. The lion is a top predator. The lion is wild, it is strong, it is powerful. And it's this dominating royal strength which defines Christ's lionness. He is king. John is working with an, a biblical prophecy from the first book of the Bible, Genesis 49, where Jacob, in blessing his sons, says this of Judah. He says, Genesis 49, 9 and 10, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Here is Jesus, Revelation 5, the victorious king. He has conquered. In Isaiah eleven ten. 10, there's also this imagery of the root of David, the root of Jesse. Paul picks it up in Romans, so I'll read Romans chapter 15, verse 12. It says, again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will all the Gentiles hope. And Jesus himself in the end of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. As lion, Jesus has conquered. He has crushed the opposition to God's rules, the satanic and human and any other kind of opposition, and he rules as victorious king. So picture this. Here's John. First, we see him weeping. An elder comes to him and says, don't weep because there's a, there's a lion. There is a king. There is a victor. He has conquered. He has crushed. He rules. And so John, you know, he's wiping his tears, and he turns to see where this, this king is. And what he sees is a lamb. Like the most opposite thing from the lion, right? The lion is strong. The lion is powerful, a symbol of, of victory. A lamb is, is humble and meek and small and weak, the symbol of everything that the lion is. And to top it off, this lamb is a dying lamb. A lamb as though it had been slain. In 1738, Jonathan Edwards, an American pastor, wrote a sermon called The Excellencies of Christ. And in that sermon, he reflected on this passage and made the point that the incredible thing, and we've already talked about this this morning, the incredible thing about Christ is how he combines things that in our human minds are incombinable. The strength and majesty, the, the humility and weakness. 
As I said, this lamb is not just a lamb, but a slain lamb. Verse 6, as though it had been slain. Literally, you could translate this with its throat cut. Jesus has conquered. But it's a victory that looks a lot like death. It's a victory that looks a lot like defeat. Think of that for a moment. That's meant to remind us that in our own lives, appearances are not always a good judge of reality. You might look at your life and think, you know, I don't see how God is in this or in this. I don't see how this event or this circumstance that I'm experiencing matches the promises that I, I read in his word. How does this connect? How does this align? This chronic pain, this depression, this wayward son, this lingering trauma, this spiritual darkness. Where is God in all of this? But if a lamb with its throat torn out is victory and is God's chosen king, could it be? that God means to take all of our pain one day and stand it on its head as victory. Maybe something like Paul said, 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. It was in the weakness of his death that Christ conquered and was given the authority to rule. You turn over to verse 9. Maybe it's not turning for you. But verse 9, as the singing begins, verse 9, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain. The reason Christ is worthy is because of what he suffered and gave up. Worthy are you because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. A ransom, think of a ransom, it's a price that is paid to rescue someone. One of the things we've seen uh, the war in Gaza and Israel is the use of hostages in really reprehensible ways, evil ways. And you think of that, you see these, these ransoms, these hostages. The Bible declares that you and I are born into this world as hostages to sin, slaves to sin, and slaves to its eternal penalty, which is death and separation from God forever in conscious torment in hell. That's our condition. That's our hostage condition born into humanity. And yet Jesus Christ died. He was the lamb who was slain for a purpose. And that purpose was to offer a ransom, to offer redemption so that all who would put their faith in him could leave the hostage camp and be set free into his eternal light and life. The elders and 
the creatures cry out, you have ransomed, you have redeemed. I would just say this morning, have you been redeemed? Does this song, this new song that's being sung apply to you? Because the Bible says there's a point of decision for every one of us. We can stay in the hostage camp. We can stay a slave to sin. Or we can turn our back and run from our sin into the arms of the Redeemer. But that's a choice we make. Can you claim Peter's words from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18? Here's what he says. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Because of his worth and his extraordinary sacrifice, Jesus can take history in hand. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples when he left them, Matthew 28, all authority has been given unto me. Here in Revelation chapter 5, look at verse 7, it says, and he went, lion and the lamb, he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. History is not out of hand, is in the hand of King Jesus. And that gives all the hope in the world. And we see lastly the response that that inspires Verses 8 through 14, there are three waves of response. They sang a new song, or take it, take it right from verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp with golden bowls full of the incense, which are the prayers of the saint. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests for our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then more people join in. Verse 11, I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. And they were out of breath. And John is seeing this. He's seeing one group sing. He spins over here, another group sing. And then there's a, a third group, verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Many times we look at the world Maybe just our own lives, our own families, the circumstances around us. And we see the things that are broken. We see the things that aren't right. We see questions that 
that aren't answered or maybe unexplained. And we might ask the question, you know, who's in charge here? Revelation chapter 5 tells us who's in charge here. Christ, the, the lion and the lamb, he is in charge. And sometimes when we look out and, and see those things that are not right, our hearts crack. And like John, there are tears. But in the tears, God comes to us and says, weep no more. Not just because those are pretty words, but because there is someone, there is someone who has entered our world in humility at Christmas, who was born to die. And in his dying, earning the worth to reign. There is a king who wears a crown of thorns. And the history of the universe is not out of control, but it rests right in the palm. That scroll rests right in the palm of Jesus so that you and I can rest right in his palm as well. Worthy are you, Lord. In every way we can imagine and a million more, you are worthy. For you were slain and you gave everything for us, Jesus. So we come before you and simply say, worthy. Lord, I also pray that through your worth, and through your word, you would give us hope. When things are broken, which they often are in our lives and hearts, when questions are unanswered, which they often are in our lives and hearts, help us to look to Jesus and to see him and to find hope and purpose and power the reality that he is king. He is the lion and the lamb. Thank you, Lord, for this word from your word. Pray this. Day.